Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Adriana Villela is a speaker, blogger, host of the podcast On Call Me Maybe, and is currently a senior developer advocate at Lightstep. Adriana joins us from Toronto, Canada. Adriana Villela, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me on. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, for me, well-maintained software is software that you can actually understand when you go into the code, even if you're not super familiar with it. The worst thing in the world is going to someone else's code and it's like pile of spaghetti where, you know, everything's tightly coupled. You have no idea what's going on. There's like no comments or, or the comments are like super cryptic, you know, weird naming conventions for variables, methods, whatever. And for me, like, you know, I'm a serial refactorer. So if I see an opportunity to make my software more beautiful, I will do that because otherwise it stays in my brain and it won't let go of me until until I fix it. Did you go to school to become a serial refactorer? No. Um, so I studied um, industrial engineering at the University of Toronto. And so traditionally, industrial engineering doesn't really have anything to do with computers, but my program actually had an, an information engineering component to it, um, option, if you will. So I did take a bunch of like comp sci type courses, um, including like data structures and algorithms, computer networking, and even microprocessors. But like, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the core of my program. So the serial refactor, I think, is just me being obsessed with like always writing beautiful code and has probably gotten worse over the years of it as I found better ways of doing things. You know, so you know, it's interesting in your background in, in industrial engineering, right? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, you think about working on beautiful code, how would you describe what beautiful code is? Because I think that to me feels like a subjective thing because like what is beauty in the eyes of the... True, true. I guess I guess it would be subjective, but I think there are, there are a few things that are common to beautiful code, which is like, it's so simple and elegant that you're like, oh my God, why, di- why didn't I think of that? Um, and I think when, when you achieve that with your code, even though it was like, it took a while to get to that point, but if you achieve that with your code, I think that makes it beautiful. Something where it's not like verbose, but like, you know, you, there's verbose code where it's like so non-verbose that it's like trying to figure out what the hell is happening in a regular expression. Sure, it's compact, but what the hell's going on? So you kind of strike that balance between code that's like not not overly verbose, but still easy to understand. And I think code that's not tightly coupled so that, you know, I, I love me some modular code. If there's something where I'm like, oh my God, I can reuse this somewhere else. Giddy up, you know, I'm, I'm excited to reuse that, that piece. Where do you find that balance between you're working on improving the, 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 the code base, the making it beautiful, breaking things down into a in, in different, making it more modular, and you were bringing up reuse, how do you balance when it pre-optimizing or pre, 
putting too much time into that thinking that do you, do you feel like there's a good distinction that like when you will make something that could be reusable versus when it is reusable? Cause sometimes we might work on things and like you can keep polishing something thinking one day this could be amazing to do all these other things, but how do you balance those kind of that line there? Yeah, I, I do think there have been points where I've like definitely over-engineered things to the point where, you know, you, you try to make something so reusable that you make it so generic that you're almost starting to like account for every single possibility. And I think when you get to that point, you got to kind of start taking a step back and think, okay, this is overkill. And either it's like, you know, overuse of reflection, like I have a Java background and I loved using reflection, but I, I know that reflection bit me in the ass a couple of times or where you're finding yourself all of a sudden putting a bunch of if statements in your code, which eh, red flag, right? But isn't that how they teach us to understand like the order of how things can operate and stuff like that? Where do you, when you, when you get to that point and you show up to an existing application code base, uh, I'm not trying to pick on the, the if statement thing there, but I think in terms of like when you're someone joining a project and things are well organized like what are you mentioned like comments can be good things to help and like it's verbose but not maybe overly verbose you know when you're trying to piece together something that's been abstracted in a lot of different ways that you're kind of like well how do I get a sense of the whole picture when you're kind of like a new you weren't there to design it so like what, what sort of things or artifacts you find to be useful as an engineer coming into a project and or creating for the unknown future engineers that are going to join that project um, well, a few things. So the comments definitely help. I guess there's a fine line with the comments as well. I think at the very least, you got to at least, you know, um, if you're if you're working with like an in-house framework or whatever, or, or a set of libraries, like document your, you know, your, your public methods. So you know what the hell is going on, right? So you know, like your inputs, outputs, what's, what's this thing doing? Bare minimum. Even if you don't comment stuff inside the method, let's Give us an idea of what's going on. If if you can, you know, depending on on what you're, on what you've got, like if you have some sort of like general documentation of uses of you know your frameworks, libraries, etc. I think that's super helpful. That's a little bit trickier um, unless you have something like kind of like with Java Docs where you know you're you're documenting your your methods already, so you can auto generate some documentation around that. That's that's useful. Um, but I do find like, I do find maintaining documentation very difficult. That's where then a debugger comes in very handy <laughs> so that you can step through the code to figure out what the heck is going on. I think the debugger is your best friend at that point. I agreed there. You know, um, when it comes to things like importance of documentation and commenting code, do you like, when, when do you typically work on that? Is it when you're working on some new functionality or refactoring? Do you tend to do a lot of documentation then? Or is it something you always kind of put on the, I need to come back and do this later when there's more, I'm air quoting, more time available? Do you have like a strategy that you and that you've seen work well for you and for your team on keeping not only documentation, adding to it as you're working on new things, but also maintaining things that have been around for a while? I think definitely as you're refactoring and trying to understand the code, especially if it's code that you haven't touched before, um, it's really important to to document as you go. And, and and you know, by document as you go, I'm not saying like, oh, I figured out what this thing does. Let's like write about it right away. But at least like once you've gotten things, because, you know, like as you're going through someone else's code, like it's 
it's an archaeological dig of sorts, right? So you might like take little notes in a notebook or whatever on the side to just figure out what the heck this thing is doing. And then once you've like reached this point where you're like, okay, this looks like it's sufficiently refactored for for now, um, I think that's a good opportunity to you know sit down and and document what the thing does. I think that, that's some. I think that's that's helpful to think through and. I mean, it's, it seems obvious, but I know that I just have worked on so many different like projects that is always like, well, if I had more time, I would write more documentation and I'll come back to this. And then like, well, I need to work on some documentation at some point. And then sometimes that, that day never comes. So I think it's interesting to think about how you're doing that within the steps that you're, when you're doing the work or working on refactoring. Is it a safe assumption that you find yourself more often on team refactor than say team rewrite? I think it's like maybe 50-50. Like sometimes I, I've definitely been in situations where I'm like, this thing just feels like I'm, you know, like, you know, when you're refactoring, sometimes it can feel like you're, it's duct tape and band-aids on, on your code that you're putting. And I think when you get to the point where you're like, this, you know what, the best thing to do is a rewrite. I think the rewrite ends up winning. So it really depends on on the situation. What sort of, conditions you think it's appropriate to advocate for a rewrite within your team or an organization? I think when you've gotten to the point where, how do you describe it? It's almost like a feeling like you're working through the code and you're like, this thing just looks like, you know, we're, we're, we're giving it life support. It, it's like spaghetti and it doesn't seem to make sense. Like when you're working on the refactor and it doesn't make sense in your mind anymore, and you're losing track of what it is that you're supposed to be doing. I think it's it's time for a rewrite. And it doesn't mean that like the whole damn thing gets a rewrite. It could be like module gets a rewrite. Sometimes it, it's kind of like writing, um, like writing a paper, writing a blog post or whatever. I find myself like I blog a lot. I find myself sometimes I'm I'm writing a blog post and I'm going down uh, this train of thought and I write out this whole paragraph and I'm like, I hate it. And you know, sometimes I'll, I'll like try to rewrite the paragraph and it's like, it's not sounding great. So what I'll do is I'll actually like push it way back, way down to the bottom of the page. It exists, but like now it's not on t- at the top of my mind. And then, so I've got like this clean slate for, for rewriting and it, my mind is fresher because it takes away the biases. I think that's the problem sometimes when you're refactoring code is that you're biased by the previous author and it can be the previous author could be you or it could be somebody else. So sometimes it's important to take that bias out and just understand, okay, what is this thing supposed to do? Is it doing the thing it's it's supposed to be doing? Can I do it in a different way, in a way that's different than the way it's presented right now? That's an interesting idea about thinking about like how you could do that with code or even like if you're just to restructure something, but and I, I like that idea, you know, thinking around how you're thinking about blog posts too. And there's definitely like a lot of unfinished blog posts or not so much that were unfinished. It's just, I decided like, I don't know where I'm going with this right now. And I think I need to come back and like revisit and be a little bit more concise with what I'm trying to convey here. Yeah, Exactly. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences or do you have a story that you recall where you came into a project and the you you quickly or maybe over a period of time realized that this was some really poorly structured code? Yeah, yeah. So I think like one of my, God, this was like almost 20 years ago. So 
I was I was working on this team where um, this guy had worked on some code and he left the team and they brought me in to like finish what he had started and I go and look at his code and this guy should never have been allowed to touch a computer ever, ever for writing code because like he did not fundamentally understand. Wait, wait, wait. Did, did, did you, what was the name of this company? And was I, I'm, that might be me. That might have been my code. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was pretty terrifying. I was like, I was like, oh my God, this guy never went to school for coding. They must have been just like throwing him onto this thing because like he just did not understand what a loop was. He took he took the same piece of code and repeated it like five times or whatever. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I had to go and take his repeated code and turn it into loops. And of course it was like one big block of code. So I had to modularize it as best as I could. Um, it was, it was hairy. It was very hairy. I was very angry having to refactor his code because I'm like, Oh my God, how can anybody be so like clueless as to how to code? But then, you know, when it was finished, I'm like, ah, oh, it's beautiful. You're, when you're kind of thinking, do you often use the, the metaphor technical debt in the type of work that you're currently doing today? Not for my current work, but definitely technical debt has come up in many, many conversations over the years as I've touched many a different code base. Yeah, something that's definitely top of mind. I wrote a blog post on on technical debt, I think, a couple of years ago, too, because I, you know, having having a discussion with uh, with with my boss at the time of like, when is it acceptable to have technical debt? Because code's never going to be perfect when it goes into production. Like that's, you know, the, the old saying, perfect is the enemy of good. And we do have to like sometimes take a step back and and make some decisions and, and make some assumptions and just go to production with certain things that are not quite perfect. But I think the problem becomes when you don't pay down the technical debt or you take too long to pay down the technical debt and all of a sudden this thing turns into a big code bomb just waiting to explode when the wrong person touches it or like even a well-meaning developer who's like not sure exactly what this thing was doing. Do you feel like your your definition, how you would talk about what technical debt is, is different now than it was or say 20 years ago in earlier in your career, if you might have used it back then? Probably because I think 20 years ago when I started out I think like I was definitely, I, I'm still an idealist, but I was a, definitely a lot more of an idealist. And, and my thought was like, all oh, technical debt, debt should be paid down all the time. And, and I don't think that's, that's realistic, but I think that we can definitely um, do things in, you know, our day to day to reduce the technical debt um, so that we don't, you know, introduce technical debt into a new project. And for example, like, how many times have we been asked to POC things? POC goes great. And they're like, great, build it off the POC. Guess what? You're introducing technical debt right there. Um, but then there's, you know, the times, you know, more mature me is like, yeah, sometimes you got to just let certain things go, but make the plans to pay down the technical debt. That's where you tend to get in trouble. It's true. Do you find that there's been some good strategies for the teams you've been a part of to do you keep a running list of those things? Do you earmark a percentage of your time to work on those things? Do you, is there like, what sort of workflow has actually worked so, so that as an engineer, you feel like there's a reliable time and place for when we will actually address these things versus 
hoping that there's going to be some day when there's not enough other things to focus on. I guess we can do that today. Yeah. So, well, I guess there's, there's two schools of thought. So when, when I was, you know, the engineer writing the code, there'd be times where I'd be like, I don't care. I'm just going to, it's going to take me extra time. I'm just going to fix this thing because I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of this thing. And it was like, surprise manager, look what I did. Yeah. Did the little sneaky, you know, ask for, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Sometimes I, Sometimes I think we got to do that because sometimes um, our managers are too far deep in other things to recognize the importance of doing that. Then there's, you know, the other side where I've been the manager and, you know, having to put aside the time like, OK, guys, this thing is breaking all the time. This is bad. We got <laughs> we got to put aside some time to to pay down the technical debt, whether it's through a refactor or a rewrite. Um, you know, that depends on on what time we have left. But you got to sometimes like pull the cord and and say, <laughs> it, it's kind of like even in in the world of SRE, like um, one of the principles that I believe in for for site reliability engineering is like, Part of the time for an SRE should be spent on ensuring the system reliability. So if if things are like totally breaking, like, you know, part of it is like, yeah, keep the lights on, automate things that you can automate. But also like if you are noticing that there are things that aren't working as well as they ought to. um, One of the things that I've always liked about SRE is like whenever there's an on-call uh, whenever an SRE is on call, they don't focus on on doing any project work. They instead focus on improving the reliability of that system when they're hopefully not fighting a fire, which I always thought was a really good, uh, really good principle. And I think that's something we should borrow from SRE more often, to be honest. We'll be back with our interview with Adriana in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Seriously, like go over to Apple Podcasts and find Maintainable. There's a link in the show notes. And go write three, two, four, five stars. And if you're not sure what you can write in the, you know, in the little description or with what your review could be to say, you know, I really like the episode with Adriana Villala. Um, that's something you could do. Um, you can be like, Robbie has a weird voice. Uh, Robbie does awkward, you know, middle of the interview callouts like this. And it, it's weird. And maybe if I write a review, he'll stop asking me to write a review. Um, unfortunately, I will probably keep asking you to do it. But anyways... Is there someone that you think I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Why don't you shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Adriana Villala. What is LightStep? Could you give us a quick little introduction to your, the organization you work with? Yeah, so uh, LightStep is an observability company. Uh, they were acquired by ServiceNow now a couple of years ago. Um, I think officially now we are... Surface now cloud observability. I believe that's our official name. But uh, yeah, basically we we have a, a product for observability. So observability is basically the 
ability to for someone to be able to understand what is going on in the system like the system is emitting enough information to us so that even if we don't know exactly what the nitty-gritty is behind the scenes it's emitting enough information so that we can follow the breadcrumbs to answer that age-old question why is this happening hmm. what's what's the day-to-day life look like for a senior developer advocate for those that might not be familiar with that role Oh yeah, so uh, so my role is interesting. I've, I'm one year into a developer advocacy type of role. Um, I focus mostly on the open source side of things, so I work um, a lot on open telemetry and open telemetry. So you know, my definition of observability, where you know the system is emitting that information. Well, open telemetry is the way to emit that information. So it's a vendor neutral way for for emitting signals for your application or your systems to emit signals um, so that you can determine what is going on. So open telemetry is a vendor neutral framework for emitting, you know, traces, metrics, logs. And the nice thing is like all the observability vendors are like fully in on it. So everybody is standardizing on it. So as part of my day to day, I actually work with folks from competing vendors to try to, to continue to make open telemetry awesome. That's awesome. Um, so is that like open telemetry something that is that like a separate service you're running in parallel and then and then you would integrate with another third party or is it more of like a, a standardized middle layer API type thing that you would feed like say if you have a Java app or a Ruby app or what have you and you would like use some sort of library that knows how to interact with the you can so you can kind of inject code specifically that will send signals to whatever vendor that you're wanting to work with, but with a consistent localized API, I suppose, that you're interacting with? Yeah, it's kind of that idea. So it's it's basically a, a framework for instrumenting your code. It, it, it can also be used for like, um, you know, instrument. it can also be used to collect instrumentation data from your infrastructure. But basically, there's an API and SDK for open telemetry, and they've, they've got language specific um, SDKs. So pretty much every language, I don't want to say every language out there, but it covers a breadth of languages, including like Erlang and Rust. Uh, I mean, Rust is popular. So uh, these days, so um, yeah, so but you know, the 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 popular ones that we know of that that we hear about all the time, like Java, Python, .NET, Node.js, um, sure I'm missing, oh, Go, of course, uh, Ruby, um, at one point, they're trying to st- start up uh, a library for, for Perl, but no luck just yet. But yeah, like the idea is you instrument your code. Um, so, you know, just as you would think of it as like, you have like a logging library for Java. Well, instead you can use the open telemetry um, logging and, but not just logging, like for, for observability, like the secret sauce of observability, my, my take of it anyway, I'm a bit of a purist, is tracing. And so because traces give that end-to-end view, right, they transcend the network boundaries. So now, you know, like you can have, you know, a, ser- a Java service interacting with the Go service and the traces will, will connect that interaction, right? So you know how, how they're working together. And then within the trace, you can have like the log messages that specify, hey, what What's happening at that point in time? Um, so open telemetry allows us to instrument our code, uh, and then you can send uh, the data through what's called the open telemetry collector, which is basically like a vendor neutral binary that 
it's a data pi pipeline, so it ingests um, the telemetry from different sources, whether it's from your application or your infrastructure. You can do some additional transformation to it if you would like. So if you need to obfuscate your data, for example, especially if you're sending logs across to whatever system um, and you don't want your PII data sent over, so you can obfuscate your data and then you can you can specify where to send it to. So any any basically open telemetry compatible backend. So whether it's something like Lightstep or I should say ServiceNow Cloud Observability, um, you've got Datadog, data New Relic, Honeycomb, like any of those vendors that I'm sure a lot of folks have heard of, you can send it to those. And the cool thing is you can send it to multiple backends at the same time. So if you're like, hey, I, I'm between these two or three vendors, you can send the data to these vendors. And what differentiates the vendors is how they're rendering the data. So because open telemetry and observability are not the same, open telemetry enables observability. So like, great, we're emitting the same data. What are you doing with my data that's gonna help me figure out what's going on? That's the differentiating factor. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I have not like looked into it that much, but you know, we work on a lot of different projects for different clients, and I work in the consulting world. And so there's tends to be like, oh, you're you're already using this sort of uh, monitoring tool like New Relic or something, and there's maybe some there's some very there's some code in the applications that are already very very tailored towards interacting with New Relic's API versus like say Sentry or some other platform. And so sometimes we're like, well, we've already there's already a bunch of code here. If we wanted to switch platforms, we got to go replace all the you know little instrumentation code in, in the process. And that's so it sounds like there might be another option out there for us to explore too. Because then we're always like, well, we want to try this other thing out, but like we don't want to take out the one we already have necessarily. But it's, I like that idea of building to have like compare them like in parallel at the same time. That sounds kind of yeah, yeah, it, it's really great, and I did it at my at my previous job where we were like looking at a bunch of different observability vendors who so we were sending sending it to three at the same time. We're like, oh my god, this is so cool! <laughs> Hi there, we hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. You know, I'm curious if you have, you know, when it comes to observability, what are some considerations that developers should make so that code is more, dare I say, observable? From a developer standpoint, put yourself in the... I mean, like as developers, we all have to debug our code, right? So put on your debugging hat and think, if I were to troubleshoot, as I'm troubleshooting my own code, what are the things that are important to me so that I have the information? It's kind of like, you know, like traditionally when you're going about and you're all of a sudden you're, you're, you're testing your code and something breaks and you're like, what the hell is going on? And you realize, oh, I'm missing a log message because I don't have visibility into this. 
that's basically like you're starting to put observability into your system, right? Because it's like, oh, I don't have sufficient information to debug. I need to add that information. Once you feel like you're at the point where you're like, I have sufficient information to debug, your system is observable. And just making sure from a developer standpoint, um, and I think this is probably the trickiest part is to have that trace sort of mindset when you're instrumenting your code, the trace first approach. The log messages are still important, right? Because they give you that additional context of what is happening at that point in time, but the traces will start to paint that picture, right? Of what's going on across the board. And I think, I think that's super important. And then the other cool thing about it is there's, um, there's this whole movement towards trace-based testing where the idea is, okay, your code is already emitting traces. How about we take these traces and create automated integration tests from these? So now you're putting observability in the hands of the QAs as well. So you can use that as a quality gate at the same time because it's like, well, hey, developers, have you have you instrumented your code sufficiently so I can create my integration tests, right? And if the answer is no, then you know it's not properly instrumented. QAs can't create their integration tests. And the cool thing is there are a couple of tools out there in the market that already do that. One is trace tests that I've played with a bunch. And then another one that I know of is Helios. They do the same thing, but they take different approaches to it. Trace tests is more declarative, whereas Helios is more imperative. So Helios has, I believe, I, if I recall, a bunch of like uh, libraries for language-specific libraries for, for writing those integration tests, whereas trace test takes more of a YAML approach to, to writing those integration tests. That's interesting. Yeah, I've not um, played with those or heard of those myself yet. So Yeah, they're pretty new in the market. So yeah, yeah. Excellent. I will include links for those in the show notes for everybody. Let's kind of switch gears for a moment. I want to learn a bit more about your podcast on Call Me Maybe. So can maybe talk a little bit, a little bit about some of the topics and themes that you tend to focus on with on that podcast? Yeah, so um, our, our podcast is about DevOps, SRE, observability, reliability, on-call, and anything in between. Um, so we, we tend to bring on guests who talk about those those various topics but the anything in between also also goes um so for example last season we had somebody who talked about um like how to run a successful like agile transformation we we like to keep it like pretty casual and chill it's just coffee with friends um and talk nerding out on tech um we also like to uh raise a lot of like mental health awareness um because i think I think our industry is definitely getting better when it comes to talking about mental health, but it is still stigmatized to a certain extent. So we want to be able to like talk about it openly. And we we like to bring in folks from all walks of life, whether it's somebody well known. We've got uh, we had Liz Fong Jones on there um, for one of our early episodes. We had Nora Jones. We had um, Adrian Cockcroft uh, to cap off season two. Um, but we've also had you know some quote unquote unknowns who are awesome humans that we know that. We want to, uh, you know, we want to elevate their voices so that other folks can can discover how how awesome they are. So yeah, that's that's basically the the gist of the podcast. That's great. Um, I'm curious, as a fellow podcast host, co-host, how has been being a podcast host impacted you? Like, how what, what, what do you get out of it? I think I get a lot of like really cool, I, I get to meet a lot of really cool people. Um, I love being able to share other people's stories. So I think that's that's been the most fun 
thing about podcasting. When I started, I was super nervous <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh my God, I probably sound super stiff when, uh, you know, in the, those first few episodes of, of on call me maybe, cause you know, trying to find my, trying to find my podcasting voice and, and Anna, my co-host and I had just started working together. We, we joined, um, we joined the, the DevRel team at Lightstep at the same time. Um, but we drive super well. So that's been, uh, that's been really fun. Just, um, getting to riff off each other and, and having fun with our guests. And I think it, it's helped too, because, um, as part of the work that I do with open telemetry, I work as part of the, um, I'm one of the co-chairs of the end user working group. And so we run these monthly Q and a sessions, for example, where we talk to, um, some practitioners of open telemetry, where we get to ask them, Hey, how's it going in your organization? Like, what are the things that are working well? What are the challenges? And I've gotten to run a couple of those Q and A's and I feel because of the podcasting experience, the Q and A's have gone, I'd say pretty smoothly because I, I think I, you know, it, to me, it feels like just another podcast episode in, in some ways. That's, yeah, that's, I can relate to that in the, I've not actually done any interviews or episodes so far with, I've done about a hundred, a little over 150 of these now, I think that I've recorded and the idea of having multiple guests or like a co-host, I'm like, how does that going to, how would that, that feels complicated to me. And so I've been like, so sometimes there's been people that have wanted to like, oh, me and my co-partner, my, you know, my co-founder would come on together. I'm like, I don't know how to make that work well yet. So if anyone's listening is wondering why it's just a bunch of individual guests, that's why I just, I'm like, how to logistically do that and how much more complicated does the editing process get? And will I still be able to be a halfway decent interviewer in that capacity? So anyways, maybe I need to just rip the bandaid off and give that a go sometime, but it's not, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. I, I, I think we had two people on at the same time once in season one. It, I think the trick is just, you know, making sure you have like the, the conversation going that you're not leaving someone out, which I, I think that's probably the scariest part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll reach out and get some advice from you at some point on that. Yeah, totally. So I'm going kind of circling back over to observability I've always wondered, like, like the, the, you've been around for, you know, in the industry for multiple decades plus, and we have a lot more tooling available, a lot more instrumentation available. Do you feel like it's a lot more complicated for people coming in the industry now to be able to wrap their head around not just the code, but the infrastructure of what it takes to run, a, like, say, a software web software application or some sort of application now than it was a couple of de- decades ago when we maybe didn't have a lot of access to those tools. I've, since I have, I have been around for a long time and I'm like just wondering as people coming in, I'm like, this seems like way more complicated in a lot of ways, but we have access to so much more information, but is that actually, is that easy to wrap your head around? And what's your kind of take on that? Yeah, that, that's actually a really interesting question. I think um, there, there are two ways of looking at it because, so if, if you look at, yeah, definitely things were things were a lot less complicated 20 years ago. I mean, like monoliths were king back then, right? And I think back then, like it was sufficient to have these monitoring systems and these dashboards and everything was okay, right? It was a lot more predictable, but now like in microservice world, as you said, things are a lot more complicated. There's so many more moving parts. And so things are work- are, are acting in really unpredictable ways. So like observability is the way to help us figure out what the hell is going on in this mess, right? But while things have gotten more complicated, so I think we have two challenges. The on, on the one hand, I think it's it can be difficult because the folks who are like more old school, who are still like 
hey, it worked fine in monitoring world. Why won't it work now? Like, I think that is the biggest challenge, right? Because if you grew up in the monitoring world, it's really hard for that paradigm shift. For the folks who are coming in new to it, they're like, yeah, whatever. They're growing up in, in observability. So it's it's not as jarring for them. And it's a really good time to get in right now, too, because, you know, open telemetry has matured significantly since I started looking at it uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and because of that standardization, I think it's a lot easier to, to get started. There's like so many more resources available um, just to, you know, just so that you can start mucking around with it. And the community has been really good. The, the, challenge, the challenge is always getting your mind around wanting to do observability, because I think for a lot of folks, um, observability can be an afterthought um, in the same way that commenting your code is, right? Because it's like, well, all I need is to make sure that the, the code is working. Observability, be pushed to the side. But if you do that, you're incurring, it's back to that technical debt, right? I think this is one of those instances where like instrumenting as you go along, similar to um, uh, what's it called? Test-driven development. You've got observability-driven development where you're thinking about making your system observable as you go along. Yeah, it's a little more painful. It's going to be a little more time-consuming, but future you will be a lot happier. You know, for those listening that might not have a lot of experience, myself included, in, in interacting with all these observability tools, do you have like a, how does your brain think about being like observability driven and like if you're building out a new small feature or adding something to existing application, is it like you're thinking about the type of data things you're going to pass around to like and expose things like where's that balance between like we know there's going to be data getting stored in a database, but what sorts of things about the interaction before you save it to a database, might you want to feed it somewhere else? Or is it more, am I not thinking about it the wrong way? And you're actually thinking more about like, it's like being able to trace through like what methods are being called with what parameters and that. I guess it's keeping in mind, like as you're writing your code, like keeping in mind that you'll want to understand the flow of your code. So even like at a very bare minimum, like for example, Java and Python for open telemetry, they have auto instrumentation enabled where at a bare, which means like it's very low touch. You, I don't think you even have to like do anything to your code specifically if I if I recall correctly. It it'll basically auto instrument like your methods so that it almost puts like a like a little wrapper around your method saying, okay, there is a trace available for method X and a trace available for, for method Y, and it'll it'll correlate um, if those two methods call each other and 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 they're auto-instrumented, then it'll do that correlation. So Keeping in mind, basically, just even even if you're like manually instrumenting your code, so having to go in and set up the tracing, keeping in mind, hey, at a bare minimum, I probably at least want to create a trace at the for your methods, and then whether or not you want to add more information to that as you're going along, as you're testing your code, as you're writing your code, huh? Wouldn't it be neat if I added some attributes here to specify like whatever I'm keeping track of, of the number of, of like seconds it took to make this method call or whatever, or, well, generally that's, I think, automatically done for you. So a better example is I'm keeping track of the number of times this method was called. That's the, the sort of thing that would be useful. Do you find that these tools make it also easy to find out what parts of your code are not being 
called? You know, is it, does it track that sort of thing? Is like the, this is rarely called, or if some, there's a method in your application, then you're trying to find some dead code. Can it help highlight that? Like this has never been called, like since we've started. Yeah, I guess because as you're going through and you're like, huh, this thing's never like you don't see it in the trace, right? Then it's definitely not being called anywhere, which I I think is like really good. And then the other the other one, like knowing the frequency of of a method call, is also important because then I think it can help you also with with uh, like just performance tuning like hey this thing gets called a lot maybe maybe we need to like take a second look especially if like this thing does a lot of database processing just taking a quick time out and this is robbie and i just wanted to let you know that we have a new newsletter if you head over to maintainable.fm and click on newsletter in the top of the navigation you will be taken to a form where you provide your email address you understand how this goes but what you're going to get is um an email from me about new episodes with a little bit more backstory about the you know the guests that we're having on and some links and then i'll also be shooting over emails every once in a while that will be letting you know talking about some of the past episodes from the vault because a lot of these conversations i've intended to be valuable the day of that it's published but then also years hopefully decades in the future because we're talking about things that impact software developers and we're not talking about what's the latest and greatest new thing we're talking about just how hard it is to manage software so again join the newsletter What sorts of data metrics do you find to be helpful or valuable to track with, you know, with, with the health of your software delivery cycle? You know, the main ones are like the amount of time that it takes um, for an operation to complete is super important. Um, looking at things like uh, CPU usage, memory usage, and you can take those metrics and you can create um, service level objectives out of them. So it's basically saying like, this is a target that I want to reach. Like for example, 95% of the time, I don't want my CPU to go above a certain amount, right? So that, that, that's an example of a, a service level in, uh, objective or SLO. And if you hit that threshold where you're like breaching the SLO, so it's happening more than 95% of the time, you're like, huh. That is a problem. So you can get it to trigger, in, in a lot of observability systems, you can basically create an SLO, get it to trigger, uh, so create an SLO off a metric, get it to trigger an alert, and then you're like, okay, this will you know, call your on-call team or whoever. This is the starting point for their investigation, right? It's like, huh, there's, there's a thing here that I need to get, go into, dig into, and then again, it's about following those, those breadcrumbs triggered through that alert based on a metric. Right, right. And so then you're able to go through there and track down like what sorts of things are happening in the system around the, you know, just leading up to that when it's hitting those spiking and and maybe in that particular example there. You know, I'm often wondering if when teams think about these numbers as as they pull these types of metrics, where they, how they decide what those percentage numbers should be like, 
have you found that there's you're kind of leaning on a lot of what like wisdom within the community or is it kind of like you're picking a number out of the air like how do you how do you decide when like when it gets to this point it tends to things start falling over or and it's pretty obvious have you found it to be the case but i've always wondered about like when people set these goals like where does that number come from yeah that's a really great question and and the initial answer is it's partly picked out of the air initially but the nice thing about slos is that they're an iterative process so you got to start somewhere And I think as you get to understand your system behavior, it's one of those things where you keep tweaking it over and over. And especially like after you have an incident and you breach an SLO, that's that's an opportunity for you to like, hey, is this, you know, is this SLO sufficient? Do we need to make changes to it? And for anyone who's interested in learning more about SLOs, um, SLOConf just wrapped up last month and the recordings should be on YouTube. And also Alex Hidalgo, who's also a guest on on Call Me Maybe, he has an awesome O'Reilly book on SLOs. So definitely recommend that folks check that out if that's something that they wanna dig deeper into. And he digs deep. <laughs> Excellent. I will definitely include links to those as well in the show notes and watch some of those myself. So a couple of quick last questions for you. Outside of any sort of like technical literature, is there a particular book that you find yourself frequently recommending to people that you work with in the industry? I don't know if it's, uh, if I recommend any non-technical books to, to folks, but definitely for me, like, Non-technical books that I've enjoyed personally have always been like biographies of folks because it really shows like, I I think biographies are a great way to show like resiliency um, in humanity and different ways that people approach different problems. And like one of my favorite biographies has been the Steve Jobs uh, biography by Walter Isaacson. It was one of those books where you're like, you know, he dies, but you're like, Till the very end of the book, you're like, please, Steve Jobs, don't die. Um, and it's one of those, It's it, I thought it was a, a really well-written book because it's like, wow, what insight into the mind of somebody who was like such a polarizing figure. It was it was really cool. And, and yeah, those, those types of biographies, like um, I always enjoy biographies or autobiographies, just getting insights into the brains of, of other folks. I think it's just fascinating. I know I haven't read a lot of biographies, but I've been finding myself enjoying them more than I feel like I used to. And I don't maybe it's a transitional period in my my own personal life or what have you, but just it's it's been interesting how much I'm like, wow, I just like plow through a biography. Where a couple of decades ago I'd be like, no, I need to focus on like upping my skill set as a software developer or someone running a company and it's like kind of like business self-help type books in some ways. But I'm like, but it's like biographies, I'm like I've also kind of always been like weirdly, it's an interesting thing about, you mentioned resiliency. There's not a lot of uh, necessarily a lot of biographies about people that just didn't figure their shit out in life, you know? And so yeah. it's kind of like a certain, what is it, survivor biasness in some ways that like, yeah, yeah. there's something worth writing about, uh, about them for some reason. So I've always been like, well, what about everyone? I'm, I'm, I might not be that kind of person. What if I'm just this person that's going to hit my head through, through life and make anyway, I don't know where I'm going. I need a therapy session for this instead. Um, <laughs> so with, with that, so, you know, you got your podcast going, you're, you know, doing your developer advocacy work and participating in open source projects. You know, are there other things in, in the industry that you find yourself being really curious about and wanting to like dig into at some point and, or things that you might be pretty skeptical about? 
I guess the, the, the thing I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with right now is this product called Cradix. That's it's an open source product. Um, and, and it's cool is to help like basically platform engineers. And uh, I, I know one of the folks working there because I, I, I was chatting with her when I was doing research about like observability in QA. Abby Banks, or, um, she, she works at Cradix and she, she's done a lot of talks on observability and, and QA. And so that's how I got to know about Cradix and, and I've just been playing around with their product to kind of see like what kind of cool use cases can I come up with. So I decided to do like um, a little POC where uh, the idea is, is like platform engineers are constantly getting requests to, you know, make things available for developers and developers have to file a Jira ticket and wait for the platform engineer to do the thing. And as developers, we like our control. I want to do the thing myself. Just give it to me. <laughs> give me access. And so this allows um, this tool, and there are other tools like that do similar things, like an, if, for example, uh, Crossplane and Port, I think, also do the same thing. But the idea is it's self-service tooling. So basically a, a, a platform engineer says, okay, I have this capability that I can make available to you. And now developer, if you want it, you can request it on demand. So the little POC that I had done with Cradix was, well, I love open telemetry. So what if we use Cradix to um, deploy the open telemetry operator to a Kubernetes cluster so that um, it could come pre-configured already to send traces to a tracing system such as Jaeger. And, and so it, it deploys the open telemetry collector, configures it to send traces to Jaeger, deploys Jaeger and deploys a test app so that you can make sure that the thing is working. So that was like my little POC and I've been like playing with Cradix in, in other capacities. Like I'm trying to get it to deploy a V cluster on a Kubernetes cluster just for fun. I don't know, it feels like a cool use case. Um, but yeah, the uh, the Cradix and o open telemetry operator um, POC, I have that on my, GitHub, and I also wrote a blog post for them, and I presented on this type of thing at Cube Huddle in Toronto uh, just last month. So, yeah, I'm I'm hoping I can play around with more of that, and then also play around a lot with trace-based testing. I started playing around with trace tests last year when they had just started, and so I've like I've played around with trace tests here and there throughout, just kind of to see where, where the project's at. And it's been really cool to see where, where it's, how much it's evolved over the last year. So that's probably something I'll be messing around with again in the near future. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for uh, sharing a little bit about things you're kind of excited to play with and interact with. And I'll track down your GitHub profile and stuff like that so we can show some share some links to those those projects and i'll also include a link back to abby's uh previous appearance on maintainable i think she was oh, back yay. in like she was <laughs> she was i think she was episode probably in the 30s so a number of years ago so i'll include links to that for everybody in the show notes as well so they can go back and listen to that if they hadn't had a chance to do that she's such a great guest <laughs> yes so where, where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering and things like open telemetry and your experiments and things like that in your blogging, primarily on your blog? I'm, I'm all over the place. So you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Mastodon, LinkedIn. I've got Instagram, YouTube, um, my blog on Medium. Um, and I think that's mostly it. Oh, I am on Blue Sky. I haven't figured out Blue Sky, but you can find me on Blue Sky. <laughs> I'm still trying to track down an invite. Oh, I can send you an invite code. Oh, there you go. That would be awesome. Um, I would like to poke around there, but yeah, I always find myself being like, all right, well, 
maybe I don't need to spend so much time on social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for talking shop with us, Adriana. Thanks for having me. Oh, 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 oh.